0: That has to be the youngest person I've ever seen concerned about tax revenue. (laughs) Over the past year, it just seems like so much of the world and the church have been in transition. And we've realized, I think, this past year that sometimes the transitions are ones you can plan for, right? You think about a graduation, you think about a job, you think about a wedding, but sometimes the biggest transitions happen in moments that seem small. Do you remember where you were? The first time your world changed. Not just the big ones, but the small ones. It's the classroom where you met the person who would become your truest friend. It's the hospital hallway that you stood in when you found out that someone you loved and had been praying for for months died anyway. It's the spot on the sidewalk you stood when you found out that someone with whom you'd been vulnerable had betrayed your trust in a way that damaged you. It's the place in the counselor's office where you sat full of anxiety and learned that you were not beyond repair. Do you remember the last time something happened in your story, big or small as it seemed at the time, that put a bookmark in your life and split it into before and after? You've already heard it read, but you can turn into your Bibles if you want to Luke chapter 19 which is one of my favorite before and after stories in the New Testament. And what's interesting to me as I've read this text over the past several months is that nobody goes into these events thinking that their life is going to change. At the very beginning of the passage, the text mentions that Jesus is coming up to Jericho, which is a huge city full of people, incredibly important to the Roman Empire, and specifically says that he's just passing through. He's just going about his way as he passes by toward another destination. And it mentions that among the throngs of people that have gathered to see Jesus, there's a wealthy tax collector named Zacchaeus who just tries to make his way and get a, a good view of Jesus. He doesn't think that his life is going to change this day either. Zacchaeus, has, as far as he's concerned, already had his before and after moment. Roman tax collectors made their living by selling out their communities, and gleaning money off the top of the taxes of their neighbors. They didn't go into that profession for a good reputation. They went into it, usually, because they had no other way to be sure of a stable income. Zacchaeus probably grew up around a group of people uh, who tried their best to avoid anything that seemed too Roman, and in the process got poorer and poorer and poorer. And so maybe Zacchaeus grew up around these people and decided that he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be a success. He wanted to do well. He didn't want to look his kids in the eye and say the words that he would heard so often as a child. I'm sorry, honey, we just can't afford it. And so he decided then and there that he wouldn't be one of those purists who never made it. And he became a tax collector. Not glamorous work, but somebody's got to do it. And he did so well at it that he became the chief tax collector, and not just any chief tax collector, but the chief tax collector in an important city, in Damascus. This sounds to me, as I read the background of the text, a lot like sort of a before and after movie. Before, a young person in poverty would not have been able to provide for his family. So he took the one avenue open to him, and after as a success. Doesn't this sound like a plot that you've seen and celebrated? And so I wonder when I read the background, why is it that Zacchaeus is up in a tree? What kind of government official surrounded by his wealth and hated by his community goes into that community and is desperate enough as a wealthy person to climb up a tree just to catch a glimpse of somebody he doesn't even know? What kind of wealthy person does that? Maybe the kind of wealthy person who's sick of his bank account being fuller than his life is. Maybe the kind of wealthy person who has gotten everything that he thought he wanted and still feels as empty as when he started. Maybe the kind of wealthy person who knows that you, when you set your hope on the wrong thing, your after won't be much better than your before. I love the way that the text words, Zacchaeus' curiosity. It says that Zacchaeus didn't just want to see Jesus, but to see who Jesus was. Wealthy people are used to people approaching them and not being the real deal, just being after the money. And Zacchaeus knows Jesus' reputation and wants to see if there's something in this interaction that's real, to take the measure of the man. And Zacchaeus gets more than he bargained for. Jesus walks right up to where he is, stood beneath the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I have to stay at your house today. And in a moment, Zacchaeus is caught in a before and after space. Do you see it? Zacchaeus is well enough connected that he knows Jesus's reputation, and the frequently annoying thing about Jesus is that he demands something from the people who follow him. People who follow him left their professions, religious people who were associated with him laid down their credibility within the religious establishment. Jesus is annoyingly costly, and Zacchaeus by this time knows it. And then the te- But the text says that he climbed down and welcomed him gladly. He saw enough in that split second that he just had to see where this goes. And so Jesus invites himself somewhat rudely to Zechariah's house. But not everybody likes that Jesus did this. The next verse is interesting and as I've read it over the past 3 months, tragic. It says, "But all the people saw this and began to mutter. He's going to be the guest of a sinner." And when I've read this over the past several months, I've uh, sort of judged the crowd for saying this, but then I wonder how you would feel if the person that's been in your city embezzling from your family for years was suddenly held up as the person in your city who had the deepest interaction with Jesus. And when I read it that way, I think that verse may be the one that we can resonate with the most. Maybe... It's just part of getting older, but I think when we're disappointed often enough and around the church often enough, we can easily get skeptical of people's actually actual ability to change because we've seen too many people start and fall away. So it's no surprise sometimes when we see people who haven't changed enough yet that we feel they've earned Jesus' attention, we mutter about them. We say they shouldn't be getting the spotlight. You should see what they were doing last weekend. They haven't earned it yet. Giving them attention just rewards bad behavior. Watch them over time, and you'll see that they really won't change. They'll drop the act eventually when it gets too hard, and I think that's a sickness, isn't it? And yet it's a sickness that many of us can fall prey to, the sickness of forgetting our own sinfulness, by focusing on why someone else is unworthy, the sickness of having the idea that God can only be near to people who look like you and dress like you and earn like you and whose obedience looks like you, or even believing, as we often do in some Christian spaces, that God's attention and favor is earned by good behavior. And so we mutter. Fortunately, Jesus isn't that put off by muttering. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house anyway, And sometime during the gathering at his house, Zacchaeus stands up, it seems, with some urgency and says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, he had, I'll pay back four times the amount. What possesses a person to do that? There's no record of Jesus ever telling him to do that, which means either that Jesus didn't tell him to do it, and he just did it of his own accord, or that Luke didn't find it interesting enough to write down. I would have. And yet I'm struck by the sentence, see here and now I do it. There's an urgency to Zacchaeus' obedience. There's the feeling in this moment that whatever grace is embodied by Jesus, whether there's a command that comes from Jesus or not, is worth enough to lay down whatever the cost may be. It seems that Zacchaeus... If he found out that right relationship with God would cost him all of his possessions, would have felt like he got a good deal. That's what revival looks like, I think. Those of us in holiness or pietistic traditions over the years sometimes confuse revival with the tinglys in your spine. Those of us who are more mainline confuse revivalism or new life with liturgy and lectionary but Zacchaeus, in the life of Zacchaeus, shows us that new life isn't what happens when you fold your rhythm into the Christian year or when the tingles come down your spine. Revival is what happens when right relationship with God is the most important thing to you. Here and now, I do it. Let's be clear, Zacchaeus is doing something that most of us would advise against. Zacchaeus has been forgiven much, and so he loves much and obeys extravagantly. The longer you've been in church, sometimes you feel like recently you've been forgiven very little, and so you love less and obey moderately. Here and now, I do it. Zacchaeus is in his own house, but he's not the host. This is Jesus' table now. And can you imagine the look on Jesus' face? The next verse says that Jesus looked at him and said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. When Jesus says a son of Abraham, he's telling the crowd that whatever it means to be truly in as a member of the people of God, Zacchaeus has it. Scholars say there could be as many as 10,000 priests in this one city alone, people who have devoted their life to service of God. Jesus elevates none of them. He goes to the sinner's house, to the notorious sinner's house. And says that this guy has it. And I wonder what the muttering crowd said then. The one who cheated us out of our income, the one who sold our entire community out for his own gain. This is a son of Abraham, even him. And Jesus says, especially him. I'm grateful that God isn't afraid to brave the muttering crowds to fill the parts of us that are hungry. I'm glad God isn't intimidated either with the dirtiness of our sins or the self-discipline we hide behind to convince other people that our life is doing just fine. I'm really glad that in our lives, as in this tax collectors, Jesus comes to whatever tree we've gotten ourselves hung up in and says, I have to be with you today and invites us to an after that's better than our before. So as Jesus comes down the road of your life today, what is he inviting you to? I imagine that all of us can probably uh, identify the need to stop muttering along with the crowd, but in many ways, that's the easier thing, because we already know we shouldn't do that. It just feels good. I think Zacchaeus actually shows us a harder question, I think the life of Zacchaeus invites us to ask, are we more like Zacchaeus before or are we more like Zacchaeus after? Here are some ways to know. If you're like Zacchaeus before, your hope for happiness is centered on success and you're willing to make compromises to achieve that success. You think any accusation that you're selling out is just haters hating. Generosity isn't one of the first words that people would use to describe you. And even when you are generous with your money, with your time, with your attention, with your energy, it doesn't change the way you do business. You'd much rather stand out from the crowd than serve the crowd. And the things you daydream about are not any different from the things that people who don't know Jesus at all daydream about. You think what the world has to offer, if you're honest, even with yourself, is pretty good. But if you're more like Zacchaeus afterwards, people can't even believe what you give away. It just doesn't make sense. Your generosity means that you go without many things that you could have otherwise had. You use your influence to gather people to Jesus and then you fade into the background because it was never about you anyway. You name the ways that you mistreat people and you make amends. You'd rather serve the crowd than stand out from it, and you give up some levels of success because you refuse to compromise what's right. And the things that you daydream about are things that make God proud. Church, we're going to be coming to the table in just a moment. And as we do, I think in many ways, we're at the table with Zacchaeus. I think Jesus has probably met you along the way in your life at some point. And he's looked you in the eye and said, I need to be with you today. I think one of the things I've realized as I've been around people who have had a true before and after moment is that almost everyone comes with a cost. You may give up opportunities or money or power or reputation or even the thing that's most precious to many of us, which is a sense that I can handle my life just fine. Thank you very much. And yet as Jesus looks us in the eye today, I think we have to ask ourselves, do we really just want things to go back to the way they were before? Don't you want an after that's better than your before? Church, whatever it is that God would call you to, I imagine there are some of us here with whom God has been speaking for a long time, and you can identify it. Others of you are seeking it. Others of you are still up in the tree and don't know Jesus at all and you're wondering how to cross the line into faith to invite Jesus back to your house or accept him when he's invited himself, this could be the day.